Hello, and welcome to the Summit Church Podcast. Our messages are designed to help teach and equip you on your journey to lead people to follow Christ. We hope that this message will inspire and encourage you no matter where you are in your journey towards Jesus. If you have any questions, want to talk, or want to learn more about Summit, visit us at summitniles.com. Good morning. Isn't it great to be in God's house? I hope you came expecting to hear from God this morning, from really encountering God this morning. We have already by by coming to the table and taking communion together. I hope you were keenly aware of you encountering Jesus in that moment. I want you to take your Bibles and turn over to the Gospel of Mark, the 10th chapter. And in a few moments, we're going to read about Another blind man who was healed by Jesus. A couple weeks ago when I preached, we looked at a different blind man who Jesus healed. John told us all about him. And we learned from him something about what authentic, intentional worship should look like. Well, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell us about another blind man who was healed. And I think we're going to learn something about prayer and what authentic faith should look like by looking at his story as told to us by Mark. Now, over the years, I've had different children ask me to pray for different things going on in their life. Sometimes it's funny or just very, very cute, but most of the time, it just touches your heart. I understand why Jesus said, we need to have childlike faith. They really believe God can do anything, and they just just trust Him. I love to hear children pray. When helping to coach Upward last season during our devotional time, we always would ask the kids if there was anything they wanted us to pray about. And sometimes they'd want to pray for a grandparent who was sick or someone else who was in the hospital or, or, or maybe about a bully who was picking on them at school. I especially loved it, though, when one little guy asked us to pray that God would help him and his family find his little sister's stuffed animal. Because she was really sad and she really loved that stuffed animal. Now that's a good big brother. We all need a brother like that. Someone who will pray for us. Uh, I love it. Kids who have been taught about God and taught about prayer and have been in church really understand. They can bring anything to God. God cares about what they care about. And they just expect God is going to be working in that very situation they prayed about. They, they don't doubt that. They have great faith. I remember eight-year-old Jessica called me when I was in my office one day, and she said, Pastor, my horse is really sick. Do you think you could come to the stables with me and pray for my horse? I smiled to myself and I said to her, absolutely. So I set up a time to meet her mom and her out at the stables and I met her horse and we prayed together, Jessica and me, not the horse. And wouldn't you know it, her horse got better. But I got to tell you, it had a whole lot more to do with Jessica's, her, her faith than my faith. I just thought I was kind of doing something nice for a little girl. I don't think I was really expecting God to heal her horse, but he honored the sincere prayers of a little girl who had great faith and knew that God cared about the things she cared about. I did hear the story of a little girl who had a doll she absolutely loved. She had had this doll since she was a baby, and that doll went everywhere with her. The sandbox, the tub, every car ride, every vacation. And after years of being her constant companion, that doll's hair was thinning and its 
Her painted eyes were faded, but none of that mattered to that little girl because she loved her doll. Well, one day, somehow, really doesn't matter how it happened, but the baby doll's head was broken off. And she then remembered that her pastor had said that on that coming Sunday evening, they were going to have a special service where they were going to pray for anyone who needed to be healed. He said, if anyone would want to be prayed for and anointed with oil, come to that service. That Sunday night, the appeal was made, and before this mother realized what she was doing, that little girl with her broken doll slipped out of her seat and walked down the aisle with her doll and knelt at the altar. The pastor, trying to be sensitive to her, knelt beside the little girl, and he put his arm around her shoulder, and he said, Honey, Jesus can't heal broken dolls. And the little girl looked up and whispered, I know, but can he heal broken hearts? You see, somehow that little girl knew what she really needed. She knew what Jesus could do. And so she came boldly and asked him to do what she really needed. Come and heal my broken heart. I want us to look at one in Scripture who knew what he really needed and was just bold enough to ask Jesus for that very thing. His story is told by Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But as I said, I want us to look at Mark's account of this one who boldly asked Jesus for what he needed. Mark tells us about this guy, but in doing so, he shows us something also about the disciples, those who should have known better, those who should have had bold faith. After all, they'd been with Jesus now for nearly three years. They should have known better. So we'll learn something from looking at the 12, but more importantly, we'll learn something about bold faith and bold prayers from this guy who was healed, who was just bold enough to ask Jesus to do what no one else could do. So if you haven't already, take your Bibles and turn over to Mark, the 10th chapter, and we're going to read verses 46 to 52. Mark 10, beginning to read in verse 46. Then they came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, that is, son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on many. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet. But he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called to the blind man, cheer up, on your feet, he's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you, Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. Now I want us to look at this story from two different perspectives. And, and really the two perspectives could not have been more different. For one group of people, this was a missed moment. For the other, it was a magnificent moment. Let's look first at the missed moment. Let me remind you of what was going on in Jesus' life right at this time. Jesus and the disciples are seven days away from entering Jerusalem for his last time. We're told they're in the city of Jericho, so they're about 15 miles away from Jerusalem. Jesus had just told the disciples what was going to happen when they got there. He said, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. So they are 15 miles, seven days 
168 hours from all of that happening. And if you go back and read how the disciples responded to that news, you would discover that basically they ignored it. They didn't want to believe it. It didn't make sense to them. They didn't understand. They didn't, they didn't want to even think about it. So instead of saying something like, no, it, it can't happen. We won't let it happen. Or if that's true, well, let's just not go to Jerusalem this time. Instead of saying something like that, they just kind of ignored what Jesus had said. Oh, except for James and John, the brothers. Right on the heels of Jesus saying, they're going to kill me when I get to Jerusalem. Right on the heels of that, James and John say, Lord, we want you to do whatever we ask. Will you give us positions of authority in your kingdom? Will you put us in charge? Would you make us the secretary of state and the secretary of defense in your new kingdom? And get this, they even had their mommy come and tell Jesus what good boys she had and how they deserved to have those positions of power and prestige. Well, as you can imagine, when word got out about that, it didn't sit right with the other disciples. All of them had conveniently forgotten how Jesus had told them if they really wanted to be his followers, they needed to deny themselves, pick up their crosses daily, and follow him. They, they forgot all about this dying out to self stuff. And when they heard that James and John were trying to sweet-talk Jesus into giving them positions of power that they all wanted, they got into this big brouhaha over who was the greatest disciple and who deserved what, and they were calling into question every motive behind everything each other did. And it's right on the heels of all of that, right after Jesus had dealt with his self-centered disciples and had said to them, whoever wants to be great among you must become a servant right on the heels of that hurt feelings, angry words, being put in place by, by Jesus this whole incident with Bartimaeus takes place. And you see, I'm persuaded, just knowing the disciples' recent history and their track record, and the fact that the ones leading the parade of people to Jerusalem were the ones telling Bartimaeus he needed to shut his yap, I'm persuaded the disciples were part of the group trying to shut Bartimaeus up. They were part of the group that didn't want Jesus to be bothered by some smelly beggar on the side of the road. They wanted to prove to Jesus how valuable they were and, and how they wouldn't let him be interrupted from doing something important like, like going to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. What they really wanted to do was to prove how important they were and how they really were the greatest disciple after all. And they almost missed the opportunity to be part of God doing the miraculous. They almost missed an opportunity to be used by God to minister to someone in great need. They, they almost missed this moment because of what I call the killer A's. Not, not the killer B's, mind you, but the killer A's. There, were, there are at least three things that will always stop us, you and me, from being part of what God is doing and being used by God to extend His grace to someone in need, the killer A's. The first is anger. I'm persuaded that the nine disciples were still angry about not being asked to go up and pray with Jesus and, and the other three on the Mount of Transfiguration. We're told about that in the previous chapter, Mark chapter 9. They're still angry 
that they couldn't heal the kid when Jesus and the three were gone. And then when Jesus came strolling into that scene where the disciples and the Pharisees are arguing about why they couldn't heal the kid, and, and the dad and the son were just kind of standing on the sideline, brokenhearted, because they thought for sure the disciples would be able to heal this boy. After all, they had healed others. And then when Jesus strolls into that chaotic scene, he did what the disciples couldn't do. He healed the boy. I think the nine were probably irritated by that. In fact, they said, why couldn't we do it? Like they actually thought it was them doing the healing and not God, but them doing the healing. Why couldn't we heal him? And I think the 12 were still angry about the arguing about who was the greatest disciple. I don't think they had settled it yet. I don't think they ever really got over it, the hurt feelings and the hard feelings, until after the resurrection. And when they were in that upper room for 10 days praying together, and finally they all came together in one accord. Oh, I don't think they were talking about it any longer, especially with Jesus right there. But I think they were still angry about it. I think that anger was doing a slow, seething burn. It was just under the surface. It was churning on the inside. It was smoldering. And even though the blind beggar had nothing to do with their anger, but because they were angry, they missed the opportunity to extend grace to him. They missed the opportunity to bring him to Jesus because they were wrapped up in their own hurt feelings and insecurities and in their own anger. Have you ever been there? You're you're so angry about something or with someone. And that anger was so consuming you. You couldn't think about anyone or anything except yourself. And you missed out on an opportunity to be used by God. You're so angry with someone. You're taken out on anyone close to you. Anger has the ability to derail us. It sure did for the disciples. There's a reason why over and over and over again in Scripture it says things like, bear with each other and forgive whatever grievance you may have against another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Forgiving just as in Christ God forgave you. See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. Anger has the ability to derail us, to cause us to miss the grace of God, to miss out on being used by God to offer grace to someone in great need. Certainly did for the disciples. The second killer, A, is attitude. The disciples, though they should have known better, after all, they'd been with Jesus, they had seen his example, they had been taught by him for three years, but on that day, they still had a stinking thinking attitude. They still had the attitude that said, I can decide what the important is. I can decide what needs to be done. I can decide how it should be done. They didn't have the attitude of a servant. Even though Jesus had taught them and called for them to be servants. You see it here, but you see it a few days later when they're in the upper room with Jesus. And not one of them was willing to wash the other's feet and take on the role of servant. And so Jesus takes the towel and the basin of water and he washes their feet, including his betrayer Judas. And the one who would deny even knowing him three times, Peter. 
Jesus knows exactly whose feet he's washing. And then he says, now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done. And you understand, he wasn't talking so much about the physical act of washing someone's feet, but possessing the attitude of being a servant to everyone. Not just to the ones you pick and choose. Not just to the nice. Not just to the ones who are easy to serve. Not just to those you think deserve to be served. But maybe even to our betrayer or denier or the one who has done us dirty. You understand, there is a huge difference between serving and being a servant. When you simply serve, you choose who and where and when and why you serve. And you choose who you don't want to serve. And when you don't want to serve. But when you're a servant, it's your mindset. It's your attitude. And the who, when, where, and why no longer is important. In fact, it's no longer simply your choice, but it's the Lord's choice. He directs who and when you are to serve. He directs how you are to serve, when you are to serve. When you simply serve, it's you choosing to serve. When you're a servant, it's the Lord directing you who to serve. Jesus Christ has called us not simply to serve. He has called us to be servants. The disciples almost missed this miraculous moment because of their anger and their attitude. And, and then there's one other killer A, at least, their arrogance. They were arrogantly thinking, I not only know what's important to me, but I know what's important to Jesus. Not only do I not want to be bothered by the beggar, but Jesus doesn't want to be bothered by him. So the scripture says, many rebuked him, Bartimaeus, many rebuked him and told him to be quiet. As if they had the authority of determining who could ask Jesus for help and who deserved to be helped by Jesus. How stinking arrogant. The killer A's. Anger, attitude, arrogance have stopped not only the disciples from almost missing this miraculous moment and being used by God, but if we're really honest, there have probably been some times when we've missed what God was doing and us being used by God because of our anger or our attitude or our arrogance. And I point out their perspective, not to point a finger at anyone, but only to say first to me, check yourself, Fred. And then do you check yourself? Are you allowing anger to stop you from being used by God? Has your anger blinded you from seeing that person in need? It may be completely unrelated anger, but it's so consuming you. It's stopping you from extending grace to others or seeing what is really the important. Or are you allowing stinking thinking, wrong attitudes, negative attitudes, degrading attitudes to, to extend grace to the, someone that God's put on your path? Stop you from forgiving. Stop you from going the second mile. And what about arrogance? Do you think you know God's agenda so well? You have the mind of Christ so well that you can walk by that hurting person and not reach out because you've determined they're not part of Jesus' agenda. And, and they're just getting what they deserve. And, and if they had made better choices, they wouldn't be dealing with the consequences they're having to deal with now. Have you or are you missing the moment to extend the grace of Jesus Christ to someone because of the killer A's, anger, attitude, or arrogance? 
while I check myself, why don't you check yourself? Well, now I want to completely shift gears, thankfully, and have us look at the same incident from a completely different perspective. I want us to look at this incident from the perspective of what a magnificent moment it was. Not a missed moment, but a magnificent moment. And of course, I want to look at this moment from the perspective of Bartimaeus, who actually experienced the manifest presence of Jesus Christ in his life. We can learn so much from this guy. He's one of the guys, when I get to heaven, I want to look up. I want to talk to him. I love everything about him. I love his boldness. I love his faith. I love his prayer. I especially love his response to Jesus' question. But first of all, let's look at what we don't know. What is it that we don't know about Bartimaeus? Number one, we don't even know his name. Oh, we know he was called Bartimaeus, but Mark is careful to point out all that means is he is son of Timaeus. Bar in Greek means son. Timaeus is his dad's name. So no one even knew this guy's name. Not Luke the historian, not Matthew, not, not the tax collector who knew everyone's name and even the genealogy of some. Not Mark who got his information from Peter. No one knew this guy's name. They all just called him son of Timaeus, Bartimaeus. You see, even if others don't know you by name or ignore you or judge you by who your parents are or who your family is, that has no bearing on what Jesus thinks of you or what he wants to do in your life. Do you hear that? Do you really believe that? Even if others don't know you by name or ignore you or judge you by who your parents are or who your family is, that has no bearing on what Jesus thinks of you and what he wants to do in your life. Number two, we don't know what causes his blindness. Was he born blind? Had there been an accident? Or did some disease take his sight? We don't know. It doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. Oh, people back then, like some people today, like to assign blame. Oh, he's blind because of ter some terrible sin his parents committed. Or he's blind because of some terrible sin he committed. And sometimes we like to assign blame, don't we? And maybe that's why we have a tendency at times to ignore the hurting and be arrogant. It's their own fault. They chose to take that drink. They, they chose to have the affair. They chose to go to that website. They're just living with the consequences of their own bad choices. They made their bed. Let them lie in it. But you understand, the causes of someone's blindness or the consequences they're suffering with is completely irrelevant. For Bartimaeus, it's a good thing that Jesus was there because when no one wanted to give him the time of day, he was just some blind beggar, just another beggar. But Jesus had compassion on him and responded to his, cause for help, his call for help. So we don't know his name, and we don't know what caused his blindness, but Jesus knew him. Let's look then, secondly, at what we do know. There is so much we can learn from from how he responded to Jesus. The first thing that struck me was his answer to Jesus' question. Jesus calls for this blind beggar to be brought over to him, and he asked him the most important question he had ever been asked in his life. What do you want me to do for you? 
Now, Bartimaeus is a beggar. That's his job. He's also blind. So I don't have any difficulty believing others, probably many others, maybe even daily, had asked him that very same question before. What do you want me to do for you? And my guess is his usual response was probably money. If you could spare a little money, that would be great. Maybe at other times when the question was asked, he said he needed food. Or maybe, or maybe if it was a friend who asked the question, he had said to them, man, I'd appreciate it if you could lead me home or, or, or take me out to the road where the travelers are coming so, so I'll have a better chance to make a few bucks. I'm absolutely sure others had asked him the very same question Jesus had asked him, what do you want me to do for you? But I'm equally convinced this is the first time he ever said to anyone, I want to see what could have possibly possessed him to give that answer? He needed money. He needed food. He's a blind beggar. Why would he even think to say, Rabbi, more than anything else in the world, I want to see. This is really key for you and me and what we ask of Jesus and whether we're going to experience a magnificent moment where we really experience the manifest presence, the miracle-working power of God in our lives. This is what I know. I call them the vital bees. Number one, Bartimaeus had the right beliefs. That's plural. The right beliefs. He's yelling at the top of his lung, Jesus, son of David. Stop right there. Think about that phrase. Jesus, son of David. Jesus, son of David. You see, that was a Jewish messianic term. I don't know how he came to believe that Jesus was the promised Messiah, but he believed it. Maybe there was a great grapevine among the blind. And maybe he had heard about the man born blind being healed by Jesus. We don't know. I, I have no problem believing after the first blind guy was healed that he went out and told everyone about Jesus, not only about him healing him, but how he believed he was the promised Messiah. Somehow, though, Bartimaeus heard about Jesus of Nazareth. When it says, verse 47... When he heard it was Jesus of Nazareth, notice he didn't start shouting, Jesus of Nazareth, have mercy on me. He didn't shout, Jesus, bar Joseph, son of Joseph, have mercy on me. He shouted, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Somehow he had come to believe that Jesus of Nazareth was indeed the promised Messiah. He believed he came to set the captive free. He believed, he believed that he came to give sight to the blind. Somehow he knew that the prophets of the Old Testament had proclaimed the promised Messiah when he came would heal the blind. And Bartimaeus believed that. He had the right beliefs. He believed the Messiah would heal the blind, and he believed that Jesus was the Messiah. He had the right beliefs. Also, number two, he had the right kind of belief. That's singular. The right kind of belief or, or the right kind of faith. I don't know if you ever do this, but sometimes I do it. Sometimes when I'm reading the Bible, I just skip over parts of verses and not think much about them. They just seem like little details that really aren't that important to the story or to me. I did that the first couple of times. I read this passage preparing for this sermon, especially when it came to verse 50, throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. That never seemed like that big a deal to me. It didn't seem like it was an important detail. But about the third or fourth time I read this, I finally tripped over that verse as I was reading along. It, it was like one of those speed bumps they put on the road to slow you down. 
Well, that verse became a speed bump for me, and I had to slow down. I thought to myself, why would he have thrown his cloak aside? And why did Mark even tell us about it? You have to understand how important the cloak was back then. That was your protection from the weather. If you were outside when a storm hit, you need your cloak. And if you were blind and couldn't run to the nearest shelter when the storm hit because you couldn't see the nearest shelter, your cloak was that much more important. In the cool nights of Jericho, it served as your blanket. In the daytime, you'd use it to shade you from the blistering sun. Your cloak was your prized possession. You protected it. You kept track of it. You guarded it. You took care of it. Now, it's one thing for a person with sight to throw it aside, knowing that he could always go back and get it. He, he could always keep an eye on it. But for a blind man to throw aside his cloak, not knowing if anyone would steal it or whether he'd even be able to retrace his steps and find it again. And of course, he couldn't even describe it to someone. He couldn't tell what color it was or really anything else about it. So it'd be highly unusual for a blind man to throw aside his cloak. But Mark was sure to give us this little but important detail, this speed bump that shouts at us to slow down. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and he came to Jesus. Why would Bartimaeus do that? I read a commentator's take on it and all of a sudden it made perfect sense to me. He had the right beliefs. He had the right kind of faith. The kind of faith that said, Jesus is going to heal me so I can throw aside my cloak and find it later because I'll be able to see it later. He had the right belief. He came expecting Jesus to heal him. That's why he didn't ask for money. He could ask anyone for money. That's why he didn't ask for food. Anyone could give him food. But because he believed that Jesus, son of David, was the Messiah, he had no problem asking him to do what no one else could do. So he threw his cloak aside because he fully expected in a couple of minutes he'd be able to see where he had thrown his cloak. He had a faith that expected and believed that Jesus would heal him. And in fact, Jesus said to him, verse 52, your faith has healed you. This is what we know. He had the right beliefs. He had the right belief. And number three, he had the right boldness. Everyone's telling him to shut his big flapping yelling lips. That They were tired of hearing this old beggar yelling. Again, verse 48, many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more. They thought, those doing the rebuking, they thought they were deserving of experiencing God's miraculous power. That They really thought Jesus ought to do whatever they asked of him. That's why they came asking for those seats of honor in his kingdom. It was crass arrogance, but they didn't think the beggar deserved anything. Let's shut him up. Let's keep him from bothering Jesus. But Bartimaeus' boldness wasn't based on what he perceived as his own goodness, but on God's goodness. It wasn't based on what he thought he deserved, but on God's mercy. He understood all of that. So it didn't bother him one little bit that everyone's telling him to shut up. This was between him and God. And he wasn't arrogantly demanding that Jesus heal him. Jesus had asked him, what do you want me to do? And Bartimaeus boldly and honestly told him what he wanted Jesus to do. That's the right kind of boldness. That, that's the kind of boldness I want. That's exactly what the Hebrew preacher was talking about when he wrote. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold unswervingly to the faith we profess. 
For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who is tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us, listen to this, let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. You see, it's all about Jesus. We can approach boldly if we know him as Savior and Lord. We can approach boldly because of who he is and what he has said and what he has promised. Our confidence is in him. Our confidence is he will always do what is right and best. We may not always know what is right and best, but he does, and he will always do what is right and best for us. He will extend grace to us in our time of need. Okay, let's get this right to where you and I are living. Let's make this practical. I think there have been some times when I've missed out on something magnificent God wanted to do for me or through me. And I'm just guessing that some of you have been right there with me because we're a whole lot closer to the disciples than to Bartimaeus. Too many of us have missed or are missing that moment because of the killer A's, anger, attitude, or arrogance. And because though we know better, we don't possess those vital B's, beliefs, belief, and boldness. God says to us, what do you want me to do for you? And we don't ask boldly. We don't ask for what only God can do. We don't really have the faith that he will work in our situation or in our marriage or in our families. And we sure don't want to be disappointed if he doesn't come through for us. So we don't ask. No boldness. I know there have been times in my life when I think if I had been the blind beggar on the road and Jesus had said to me, what do you want me to do for you, Fred? I think I would have said, could you give me some change? Or do you have a piece of bread you could spare? But I wouldn't have said, I want to see. Maybe because of the killer A's or maybe because I lack boldness. James, Jesus' little brother, is the one who said, you do not have because you do not ask God. No boldness. Then he went on and said, when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your own pleasures. Wrong attitude, arrogance. Let me ask you something. Assuming your motives are right, assuming you've already asked Jesus to be the absolute Lord of your life, what is the one thing you would ask God to do if he walked right up to you this morning and said, what do you want me to do for you? Maybe it concerns your marriage or, or another relationship. Maybe it's in your finances. Maybe it's that out-of-control anger or bad attitude that's wreaking havoc in your life. Maybe it's a broken heart that needs to be healed. Maybe it's concern over that grown child who's walked away from the Lord. Maybe it's your health or an addiction that is controlling you. What would you ask him to do? And do you possess the right beliefs? Is he really your Lord? And the right faith to boldly ask him, not demand it, but boldly ask him to do that for you, to do what he knows is best for you, to do the right. Could it be, I'm just asking, could it be that you're missing out what only God can do and what he has for you because you've never been bold enough to ask? Could it be, just asking, 
You've listened to all those other voices that have told you to be quiet and Jesus doesn't have time for you and your kind and you've never really asked. What would you ask him to do? And would you be willing to follow him absolutely, completely in all things? That's the other thing I love about Bartimaeus. I love the fact he threw his cloak to the ground and walked away from what in a sense was his security blanket. What great faith. And I love what it says he did after he was healed, after he began to see, after he began to make, match faces with voices he had only heard, when he saw flowers he had only been able to smell before, when he saw trees and blue sky, maybe for the first time. I, I'm not sure what kind of response I expected, but Mark says, immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. And followed Jesus along the road. And I bet he wasn't walking with his head down, but he was jumping and dancing and laughing. But most importantly, he was following Jesus. It was just the most natural response. Jesus had healed him. He could see. And now he wanted to do nothing but follow Jesus where he was going. And I'm sure he was telling everyone who would listen and everyone who didn't want to listen. Like the blind guy who had been born blind but was healed. Once I was blind, but now I see. Once I was blind, but now I see. And it was Jesus, the Messiah, who healed me. Let me ask you again. Are you more like the disciples or Bartimaeus? You understand if you had asked the disciples, are you a follower of Jesus? They would have said, are you kidding? We gave up everything to follow him. If you had asked them, do you love Jesus? They would have said, absolutely, more than anything in the world. If you had said to them, have you seen miracles and answers to prayer? They would have said, yes, a thousand times. But they still almost missed this magnificent moment because of their anger, their attitude, or their arrogance. Are you more like the disciples or Bartimaeus? Are you willing to really follow him down that road? I'm going to invite the worship team up here. Let me ask you, are you close to missing out on a magnificent moment and all that God has for you, his manifest presence in your life? Do you need to throw your cloak off that which you have been relying on in the past and renew your faith in him and boldly ask him to do what no one else can do? What is the one thing you would ask God to do for you if he walked up to you and said, what do you want me to do for you? Do you have that childlike faith? And will you be bold enough to ask him to do that for you this morning? Will you experience his amazing grace in your time of need and his great undeserved mercy? Will this become a magnificent moment for you? Will you ask him to do for you what really only he can do? And with a faith that says, I trust you. I trust that you're going to do what is right and best. Let's pray. Lord, we're just pausing in this moment before you. We absolutely know you are here. Your presence is real. Lord, give us the kind of faith that will ask you to do what no one else can do for us. To work in that situation, in that relationship, in that hurt. Whatever it is, Give us the faith that says, I trust you. I trust you. I trust you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Thank you for joining us for this message from the Summit Church Podcast. Again, if you have any questions, visit us at summitniles.com. Now go and be the church in the world 